Well, this morning, if you want my notes, I would encourage you to text notes to the number that comes on the screen because I actually have the most notes in the history of any sermon I've ever preached this morning. There's a lot of scripture and a lot of things that I'm going over. So let me ask you this. If you connect with God through learning, wave your hand at me. Okay, this message is for you. If you connect with God through adoration, wave your hand at me. Don't fall asleep on us. If you don't know how you connect with God, wave your hand at me. Okay, go through connect and we'll teach you how you connect with God. It's awesome. We'd be a game changer for your spiritual growth. How many ready for the word this morning? How many came ready to feast? John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Someone say believe. Verse 29, Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, you have believed because you have seen me. Now, blessed are those that have not seen and yet believed. I came to tell you this morning that God encounters are waiting for you in the Bible. The title of this message is Strengthening Foundations of the Faith. The Bible is the Word of God. Let's pray. So Lord, we declare that your word, grab your Bibles all over this place. Lord, we declare that your word is true. Let every man be a liar. I declare right now, let your word be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Father, we hide your word in our heart that we won't sit against you. Lord, I pray right now that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would give us hearts to receive and minds to understand what your spirit is saying. Father, I pray right now, we declare no spirit, but the Holy Spirit is welcome in this place. So we say, fear, you have to go. We declare distraction, you have to go. We declare doubt, you have to go. We say, Holy Spirit, come rule and reign. Father, I thank you that nobody came to hear me. We all came to hear you. So we say, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Well, we are stewarding a prophetic word over the year of dunamis, that this year his dunamis power would go from resting on us to in us, that this would be a year of strengthening and fortifying. And so we are committing this rest of the year or this season to teaching how to strengthen and fortify you in your faith. When we released that word on dunamis, there was multiple prophetic words that were given at the beginning of the year. Here were a few of them. That this year you would fortify the foundations of your faith. That you would be people of the spirit and of the word. The word of God, the Bible, would strengthen you this year. The enemy tricking you with, did God really say, will no longer work on you. You will know what is written and you will know God's word. You would be strengthened by the word by reading it and memorizing it. These were some of the prophetic words that were released in January. It reminds me of Psalms 119.11. It says, for your word I have hidden in my heart that I will not sin against thee. This is very important. You need to hear what I'm going to tell you right now. One of the greatest ways that you can strengthen and fortify the foundation of your faith is to know God's word. It's quiet in this spirit-filled church. Mercy culture, we are people of the spirit. This is a spirit-filled, presence-driven church. We must be to the same degree a biblically-based, Bible-centered church. 
as your pastor, this is one of my greatest concerns for you in this community. Because you cannot be spirit-filled and theologically empty. This is important because the spirit-filled church gets really excited about God speaking and the gifts of the spirit. And I, me too, I love that stuff. When, when God speaks, it's one of my favorite things in the, on the planet. But you cannot get more excited about his voice than you do the foundations of what he's already said. Listen, you telling me what you know about God without knowing God's word is like a single person trying to tell you how to parent. Or maybe this is better. It's like a 25-year-old life coach. Who's got a social media page trying to tell you how to be successful in life and business? You're like, awesome. Talk to me in 25 more years. That should be the same response to the excited, spirit-filled person that doesn't know God's word. This is important because it truly is the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And some denominations has made it about the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Which the truth is, is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all revealed in his holy word. Church, this is so important. We must be people of the word. My sophomore year in high school, my mom got me reading the Bible. And I have, a, a, have had a learning disability my whole life, and so it's tough to read, and I see things backwards. And, and so I was struggling with my grades, and my dad said if I didn't have a 3.0, I couldn't go to driver's ed. And like, that was the goal in life, just drive. <laughs> so I'm like, I gotta get my grades up, and, and, and I was struggling, I was doing my absolute best, but I was falling short every time. And my mom some, just randomly said, if you start reading your Bible, your grades will grow up. I'm like, how's that possible? She goes, watch. So I was like, all right, I'll give this a shot. And I just read one Proverbs a day, one, one, one chapter of Proverbs every day, that's it. Got my next report card, my grades went up. I was like, well, let, me, let me see what two, two chapters a day do. Show, let me see what three do. Five, I got to 10. I was in high school, I graduated with the 3.9 in college while I was in high school. Hold on, and I'm not that smart of a guy. But I started filling myself with God's word. Let me give you some practical advice. Read your Bible every day. Every single day. And we made it easy for you because the version has different Bible reading plans from the same ones that I did in high school. Very basic Proverbs, Psalms, and a gospel. You're reading Psalms, worship, Proverbs, wisdom, and you're reading about Jesus every single day. And then when you add stuff, you add some in the, some of the epistles, and you add some in the Old Testament, some in the book of Revelation. You start adding stuff, watch, and you begin to build yourself a spiritual arsenal of knowing God's word. Listen, church, read the Bible every day. In fact, one of our ways that we connect with God is through meditation. And, and maybe this is one of the best ways you'll connect with God. But it doesn't matter how you connect with God. All of the ways connect with God, you will grow through his word. Amen? I want to talk to you about the authority of God's word. And this is important what I'm about to tell you. God's word, the Bible, is the highest authority in our lives. I'm going to say that again. God's word, the Bible, is the highest authority authority in our lives. If you claim Jesus, if you claim to be a Christ follower, his word has the final say. This is important. I want you to hear me, you spirit-filled community, you. What God speaks to you never overrules scripture. I want you to let that set it, sink in for a second. It will never supersede scripture. What God speaks to you has to reflect scripture or scripture would endorse what God's word was to you. One time I was youth pastor and this young man told me, he said, uh, hey, Pastor Landon, God told me to date this other boy and I was gonna be a witness to him and that's why I'm supposed to date him. 
And I said to him, I could assure you that God didn't say that. And the reason I know for a fact is there's not one scripture that would support you saying God told you that. Just like there's not one scripture that would support other decisions that we make when it comes to immorality and unforgiveness and hatred. When God speaks to you, scripture will either reject it or support it, but scripture is the highest authority, amen? Hear me today, the Bible is the word of God. We affirm the Bible containing the Old Testament and the New Testament is alone and only infallible, inspired word of God, and that it is the authority. It is ultimate, final, and eternal. It cannot be added to, subtracted from, or superseded in any regard. The Bible is the source of all doctrine, all instruction, all correction, and all reproof. It contains all that is needed for the guidance in godliness and in practical Christian conduct. I want you to think about this morning. Why do we forgive? The Bible tells us to. Why do we love? The Bible tells us to. Why do we uh, refute uh, evil and sin and flee from it? The Bible tells us to. Why do we give? The Bible tells us to. Why do we serve? The Bible tells us to. Why do we pray? The Bible tells us to. Listen, everything we do as Christians, Christ followers, is because God's word tells us to. Why do we worship? God's word tells us to. Why'd you hide during COVID? God's word did tell you to. <laughs> Says don't forsake the gathering of the saints. God's word gives us instruction for godly living. Someone tell, say, the Bible tells me to. First Peter 1 verse 23 says, since you have been born again, a Christ follower, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. All flesh is like grass. It's like glory, like a flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. Look at this. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Someone say forever. The prophet Isaiah 48 says this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Someone say forever. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. So let me give you a real caution. Be careful when you hear people devaluing and dishonoring God's word. Last year we talked about the gift of discerning between the spirits. You have to discern what spirit is in operation when someone devalues and dishonors God's word. Look how Jesus looked at God's word. Look at the value of God's word. He would always reference scripture and, and reference it with such great value. So when people are devaluing God's word, you gotta be careful because they're just a few steps away from heresy. I remember I was watching the news one time in this famous news anchor on a popular cable network. He was interviewing a, a pastor here locally from DFW. And the pastor referenced the prophet Jonah. And he talked about Jonah and the whale. And the news anchor who was pompous kind of cut off the pastor and said, well, pastor, pastor, you know, that's Old Testament. You know, we, we understand the Old Testament to be more allegorical. I'm sitting here watching. I'm like, this is supposed to be a smart dude. And I think this guy claims to be at least a Catholic, but he, this guy claims to be a follower of Jesus in some capacity. I said, so let me get this straight. As a follower of Jesus, sir, you believe that a teenage girl got impregnated by God. She gave birth to a sinless savior who walked the face of the earth for 33 years, died on the cross for our sins, overcame death in the grave, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and one day is coming back for you and I, but the Old Testament is allegorical? But a big fish swallowing a man is more far-fetched? Someone say faith. When there's a devaluing or dishonoring of scripture, it's to get you one closer to heresy. 
And what is heresy? It is when you take God's word out of context and when you start saying God's word doesn't say what it really says, it says what you want it to say. Do you know there's all sorts of Bibles that are filled with heresy? Probably the most famous is one called the Queen James Bible. In the Queen James Bible, they took the eight references that absolutely refute homosexual practice and they rewrote the eight scriptures that had to do with homosexual practice so they would not be offensive to anyone who has either affirmed as a gay Christian or has engaged in that community because they said, we don't want this to be defensive or offensive to anyone who's in this lifestyle. Could you imagine if we did this for the liars? Could you imagine if we did this for the thieves? Let's just take every scripture out on stealing. Could you imagine if we did this for the prideful? Where you just pick and chose which ones you wanted. But here's the problem. They took out the eight that had to do with homosexual practice, but they left in one that they should have taken out too if they wanted this to be a real good ploy. It's in Revelations chapter 22. It's actually the last chapter of the entire Bible. It says this in verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book and this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city. This is important. Heresy is when people start taking other ancient sources to try to interpret the Bible. You need to hear me. This is very important. Learners, come with me. Is you do not use other ancient texts to interpret the Bible. The Bible interprets itself. Not only does the Bible interpret itself, the Bible interprets you. You thought you read the Bible. The Bible actually just reads you. Don't fall asleep on me, adoration people. Knowing God's word is the greatest defense to deception, false teaching, and heresy. Do you know what the problem with the church is? You don't know God's word. You just know the sound of dinner bells. A preacher just has to all of a sudden ha, start talking like this ha, and say whatever you want to say. Ha. It doesn't even matter what he says. Ha. It could be heresy. Ha. It could be anything. Ha. It doesn't matter. Ha. As long as you get in the mood. Oh, it's not just the preachers, it's the worship leaders too. They're living in sin, all sorts of compromise in their life. They're all about the strange fire, not the holy fire. They have, they have abandoned godly justice, but they sound like they're presence driven. And because we don't know God in his word, we get seduced by the sounds of music that might sound like worship. So we don't know the difference between what is good and what is God. Because you're a little YouTube influencer that says little cute things. You're like, oh, that's so good. It's so good. Wow. It's so good. It really isn't. And not only is it not so good, it's not God. No, but America has been lulled to sleep by the tickling ears, preachers that tell you what you want to hear. Oh, pastor, you're too harsh. Then go to a soft church. I don't feel like you're that loving. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense unto me. Levin, are you here? And one of you is a devil. Did you hear how he talked to the Pharisees, the religious people? Well, how are you going to win the lost? That's your job. My job's to equip the saints. 90% of the time, I'm not preaching to the lost. You do your job, I'll do my job. My job is to equip you. Your job is to go win the lost. I'm not an evangelist.
So we have to be able to say without a shadow of a doubt, abortion is wrong. Watch. I don't care about what your culture says about it. I don't care what celebrities say about it. I don't care about what your friends say about it. I only care what God's word says about it. So watch. I will teach you what God's word says, but you don't go to your friends and be like, abortion's wrong, you're all evil. No, it's like, no, 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 no. No matter what sin you've committed or done, that's what mercy is for. Watch, the approach is different. You think I'm harsh because I'm helping you not be soft. Because you have to know the truth in order to go and win the lost. But listen, your soft cell, weak self Christianity is not winning. I don't want to be preachy. It's funny because they're preaching to our kids transgenderism. Disney's preachy. The school system is preachy. Pornographic books in their library are preachy. Oh, it's quiet in here. I'm starting to get offended. I'm getting triggered. Good. And great peace who love thy law, word, and nothing shall offend thee. If you want to be able to refute heresy and false teaching, the greatest defense is a good offense. People say defense wins championships. It does not. You could have the best defense in the world. If you don't score, you will lose. You must know. Listen, it doesn't work what Pastor Lannon says. Here, let me send you to his Instagram page. Ask the seven sons of Sceva how well that worked out to him. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul talks about, the demons talk back. Jesus we know, Paul we know, who are you? The greatest off are the greatest defense against heresies and false teaching is knowing God's word. Let me show you Matthew chapter four. Matthew chapter four, look at this. Matthew chapter four, this is Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, okay? Famous portion of scripture. In verse, chapter four, in verse five, it says the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and he sent him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, look at this, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Look at this, Satan is quoting Psalms 91. Satan is trying to manipulate Jesus like he did Adam using scripture. Jesus responds, I see your Psalms 91 and I raise you a Deuteronomy 6.16 because it is written, also written, you shall not put your Lord, your God to a test. Church, you cannot respond to false teachers and demons. It is written when you don't know what is written. It is quiet in this spirit-filled church. I just really want to learn how to prophesy. Great, read your Bible. I just want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Great, read your Bible, it'll happen. Well, I, I just, I, I, Pastor, I just really feel like I have an apostolic anointing on my life. Great. Read your Bible and go to SLS. I'm telling you, it is the greatest defense against the attack of the enemy. See, because if you don't know what the Bible really is, you will not yield the sword correctly. Some of you don't know how to use the sword. You just think that this is a pretty book ends up on grandma's shelf or, you know, I got a really big one. It actually holds all my books up and they don't even fall over. <laughs> we have lost sight of the beauty of this book. Can I tell you about the Bible? 
Do you know the Bible is the number one selling book in human history? You know the top three books ever sold are? Number three is Lord of the Rings. It sold 150 million copies. Number two was A Tale of Two Cities. It sold 200 million copies. Number one was the Bible. Over five billion copies in over 2,000 languages. It is the number one selling book in human history by a landslide. What is this number one seller? The Bible is a collection of many books, 66 in total. It has 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, where the scribes, the priests, the prophets, and the poets would keep records of their history of their encounters with God. It consists of categories of poetry, history, biography, letters, apocalyptic writings, symbolism, and more. There's many symbols for the Bible as a whole. We know it's a sword. Hebrews 4.12. It's a lamp or a light. Psalms 119. Hebrews calls it an anchor. Jesus called it the bread of life. Matthew chapter 4 and Deuteronomy chapter 8. It has 40 authors from 13, century, uh, 13 countries, three continents, three languages, all pointing to a central themed message. This message was carefully preserved in records dating from the second millennia BC to the first century AD. So God used his servants, his people, to write down his inspired words. Second Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Someone say all scripture. Timothy says it is breathed or inspired. That word breathed in the Greek is the word theoniosto, which means to be divinely breathed. This is important. Listen to this. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. Genesis chapter one, look at this. Beginning in verse one, we're one one. This is the first first. first Verse in the entire book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. Before there was anything, his spirit was here. John 1, 1 says in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. 2 Peter 1.19 says this, we also have the word of the prophets as confirmed beyond doubt. And it will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in dark places until the day dawns that the morning star rises in hearts. Look at verse 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no such prophecy was ever brought forth by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is important for you to know. God is the author of the Bible. He used men to write it. God is the author. He used men. It's kind of like some people sing songs, but different people author songs. So if I said the song, I will always love you, you know, want to sing it together? <clears throat> and I will always Everyone who is singing has a testimony. Everybody. <laughs> so you know that song, almost, almost uh, you know, half the room knew the song. And who wrote that song? Oh. There's a little bit of debate in the church. No, no, no. Your friend Whitney sang it. But your girl Dolly wrote it. You know she has a testimony, that lady in the back. She just got really excited about Dolly right there. There'll be prayer partners down at the end for everybody. Now, now watch. Sometimes the person singing it gets the credit, but they were just the voice. They were the instrument 
behind the true author. The Holy Spirit is the true author of the book. He just used his servants as the voice. Let's look at this book, the understanding of how this Bible was put together. The Old Testament is 39 books with a few main categories. If you read a Hebrew Bible, the categories are the law, the prophets, and the writings. If you read an English Bible, it's the law, history, poetry, and wisdom, and prophecy. But all of these books were gathered together and canonized, or the canon was the description of the final compilation of all of these writings. The word canon is a Greek word that means the rule or standard because God's word is the rule and standard. I'm gonna give you some information so don't fall asleep on me. The Old Testament was completed around 400 BC and the oldest complete copy of the Hebrew Bible is around 1000 AD, which is a span of about 1300 years from its earliest copy to completion. But then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls that gave us a different timeline and that narrowed the timeline down to about a thousand years. After this thousand years was up, they found it to be 95% identical or to textually pure. And the only difference in the copy was some differences in spelling. The Old Testament, God revealed himself to Abraham and then the storyline continued and was supported by God's servants and his prophets. God continued to reveal himself to his people who closely stewarded these God encounters. Then Jesus came along. And the New Testament, it was compiled and recognized by 290 AD. It was the New Testament was written between 50 to 100 AD and the earliest completion from around 125 AD of the compiled books. This was a time span of approximately 25 years or not even one generation. There was 24,000 24, copies in multiple languages of the New Testament with a 99.5% accuracy to be to textually pure. By the end of the first century, most of the books of the New Testament were already recognized as scripture by the early church. When Alexander the Great conquered the Western world, Greek became the common language. I see my Greek friends on the second row right here. So the Septuagint was created as the translation of the New Testament into Greek. But the New Testament was commonly quoted because it was written in the, uh, in the language of the day. Before Paul wrote his letters, the gospel's tradition would have been circulating orally. Paul began writing letters to the church and they begin to circulate and then the gospels begin to follow. So the church then canonized the New Testament. The fourth century emperor Constantine authorized the completion of the Old Testament and the New Testament together possibly for the first time. In the 1400s, Johannes Gutenberg invented a printing press and began to print the Bibles. And that is how we've seen widespread distribution of the number one selling book in human history. So it leads us to the question is this, is were the, how were the books in the Bible selected? And the short answer is God selected them. The criteria for canonization of the scripture in the Old Testament was the conformity to the Torah. What does that mean? If it did not line up with the Torah, it was cast out or pushed out because it would not be affirmed by what God wrote. In the New Testament, there was a little more put to that. We have the four main criteria for the canonization of scripture in the New Testament. We have apostolicity. Was it written by a prof, uh, an apostle? Was it trusted throughout history? Was there relevance to Israel and the church? And was there long-lasting usage and application? So let me simplify all this for a second. God revealed himself to Abraham and all of the other texts supported the same storyline or the grid of that story. Some of you might think that's too simple. God's too complex for our minds. Here's what you need to understand right now. God in his providence 
chose what would to be preserved as the Bible. All the other texts that did not line up with this storyline were cast out or they didn't last. They were ancient texts and scrolls that got buried and deteriorated. God himself protected what would become scripture. This is usually in a part where someone in the service is like, no, 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 I want to hear about the Council of Nicaea and I want to hear about the Council of Hippo. And, 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 and you can't name one guy that was in that group that gave validity to the, the scriptures when the scriptures had validity before those guys lived. Because when Jesus was talking about the scripture, he was pointing back to before those men's time. You need to understand this. Listen, you have to understand the sovereignty of God protecting his word orchestrating the same way he has done with your life, he has done with his word. And here's what you need to understand is there will always be critics who will challenge the Bible, but when you study the Bible, you will see the answers to critics. Guys, critics are nothing new to God's word. Let me show you Genesis chapter one. I already told you how Satan attacked Jesus in Matthew chapter four. Look at this, Genesis chapter one. I'm not talking about 66 books in the Bible. I'm not talking about 300 prophecies of the Old Testament that point to the New Testament. I'm not talking about anything but one instruction. God spoke to Adam and Eve and said, don't touch the fruit. That's it. Not Old Testament, not New Testament. One instruction. Adam and Eve, don't touch the fruit. What did the serpent say to Eve, put the scripture up, Genesis chapter one. Did God really say? Not 66 books, not Old Testament, New Testament, one instruction, don't touch the fruit. And the enemy comes and attacks what? God's word. You thought deconstructing was new? It was there at the beginning. It's always been the enemy's attack. It was the first attack with Adam. It was the first attack with Jesus. And it will be the first attack with you. Did God really say, church, there's not another book in the history of the world that has withstood more attacks, scrutiny, and demonic resistance like the Bible. So let me give you some practical advice. Don't waste time arguing with people over the Bible. I'm not saying don't explain things, I'm saying do not argue with them. Because if people don't want to trust the Bible, they have to deny history and deny science. You're not dealing with someone's mind, you're dealing with their heart. So let me ask you this question, how do you know if you could trust the accuracy of the Bible? Well, let me ask you this question. What other historical text do you question the authority of? Please answer. Because if you cannot come up with one other ancient text that you refute the reliability and the accuracy of, it proves that you have a bias. And this isn't a mind issue for you, it's a heart issue. So let me ask you this question. What is the second most historically accurate book in the world? The second most historically accurate. Because it's interesting that everybody wants to attack the first most historically accurate book in the world, but no one ever attacks the second. In fact, most people don't even know what it is. When you talk about historical accuracy and reliability of ancient texts, there's two main categories to that. The first is how long was the date from the original copy of the original document? How long of a period of time from the first one to the copy? The second part of historical reliability and accuracy is how many original copies were there? These are the top two things that we get to find out the historical reliability and accuracy of any ancient text. So when you ask someone, what is the second most historically accurate book on the planet? And they can't tell you. It shows that they don't want to know truth. Put that graph up there. I'll give you the example. The second most historically accurate book in the planet is Homer's Iliad. 
Homer's Iliad was written in 800 BC and his earliest copy was in 400 BC. So it's a time gap of 400 years. That's a long time. Think back between our nation what's happened over the last 400 years. The first manuscript or copy was copied 400 years after its original manuscript. Then it had 1,757 original copies. That is the second most historically accurate, reliable book in history. Look at these other ones. You have Plato. Have you ever heard anyone argue the, the validity or the accuracy of Plato's writings? Have you sat in one college class where they debated this? No, but look at Plato's writings. Plato had 1,300 year time gap with only seven copies. And for the sake of time, let's just jump to the New Testament. The New Testament was written between a time gap of 40 years. Why? Because the disciples were already making notes the moment Jesus ascended. Watch. A 40-year time gap. It's not even a full generation time gap. And look at this. The New Testament. 5,795 copies. Blows all of the rest of them out of the water. You know what's wild about that? That's just the original Greek copies. That doesn't and include the other languages that had original copies it was placed in. If you add those up, it's closer to 24,000 copies of the New Testament written. And out of those 24,000 copies, it was 98% to textually pure. And the 2% in question had nothing to do with doctrine or theology. It was spelling variances that changed what it sounded like. Here's what you need to understand. The Bible is the most historically accurate book and the most preserved document in the history of the world. Hear me, church, today. The Bible is unparalleled in its accuracy, unequaled in its reliability, and unsurpassed in its relevance. There's no book like it. But that's just the history side of things. Let's look at the science side of things because there's going to be skeptics in the room that despite the historical accuracy, you still want to be a denier, and that's okay. Our friend John Bevere wrote in his book, Good or God, a story about a guy named Dr. Perry Stoner. Dr. Perry Stoner was an expert in probability. He was a chairman of mathematics and science at Pasadena City College and West College, if you're unlike me and you're unsure what probability is, let me give you the, de the definition. It is, it is the extent to which something is probable, like the likelihood of something happening or being the case. So in the 1950s, Dr. Peter Stoner did a research project. He recruited 600 researchers from, I believe, 13 different classes and they took the 300 prophecies of the Old Testament and compared the probability of them happening in the New Testament. Learners about to get excited. Everybody else, buckle your seatbelts. The probability was, what is the probability of, from the end of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, from 400 years from Malachi to the New Testament, a 400-year time span, from Malachi to Matthew, of these 300 prophecies being probable, or predictions being probable. Now, that is only 400 years from Malachi, but remember, all these prophecies weren't just 400 years from Malachi. Malachi was just one prophet. So it's really more like a 1,000 years after some of these prophecies. What would the probability of them happening? You gotta follow me with this. What is the probability of individuals who have never met that don't speak some of the same languages giving prophetic words and the prophetic words that they gave hundreds or 1,000 years ago actually taking place? Are you following me? So... They do this scientific research and outside third party scientific researchers looked at it and said, not only do we believe that their outcome is accurate, but if anything, it's conservative. So I'm gonna give you their outcome. So the, the study shows this and they said, we're gonna show the probability 
of these eight prophecies coming to pass. Let me give you these prophecies just so you know which one. They just took eight. Now there's 300 of them in the Old Testament that point to Jesus in the New Testament, but they just took eight. Here's where the eight they started with. Christ to be born in Bethlehem. Christ to be preceded by a messenger. Christ to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Christ to be betrayed by a friend. Christ to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. The money Christ was sold to be thrown into the potter or in the God's house. Christ was silent before his accusers and Christ executed by crucifixion as a thief. What is the probability of this happening? So to show the narrative, he said, it would be like taking one coin, probability would be like taking 10 coins and marking one of the coins with the mark, putting those 10 coins into a bag, reaching into the bag and pulling out the marked coin, what is the probability? And the probability of taking 10 coins and putting them in a bag is one in 10. So they use this equation. My math people are like, yes, let's get it. Okay. (laughs) What is the probability of this happening? Watch this. They took eight prophecies, eight prophecies, 400 to 1,000 years into the New Testament. What is the probability or the likelihood of this happening in a coin Narrative. And when they did the equation, 600 researchers, they came up with this conclusion that there is a one in 10 to the 17th power chance of this being probable. So that is a one with 17 zeros behind it as the answer. And if you're like me and That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. He said, actually, think of it like this. If we go back to our coin analogy, it would be like taking coins, but instead of putting 10 of them in a bag, it'd be taking coins and putting it across every square inch of Texas, two inches deep of coins. And I don't know if you've ever driven from El Paso to the civilization, but my God, Texas is big. It would be like coins covering all of Texas. You jump in a helicopter, fly around Texas, randomly land, close your eyes, put your hand in the ground, pull out a coin, and it was the one that was marked. That would be the probability of eight of 300 prophecies coming true. Hold, oh, but they said, let's, 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 do it. let's take it even further. What would be the probability of 16 of these coming true? 16 of them. So they redid their research, and here's what they found. If 16 prophecies came true, it would be, the answer would be 1 in 10 to the 45th power. So the doctor said, actually, uh, Texas doesn't work. Uh, the, the, the world doesn't work. If you took all of those coins, put them in a ball, compact them together, that ball would be 5.5 billion miles wide. Just to put it into perspective, it would be like going from the earth to the sun back and forth 60 times. That is how big the ball of coins would have to be. And then you reach down and grab one coin and pull it out. That would be the probability of those four. 45 prophecies are those 16 prophecies coming true. Then they said, we're going to take it one step further. We're going to see what it would be with the probability of 45 prophecies. Then they did this, and this is where I checked out the research because they started talking about atoms and, 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 and molecules. And at this point, my mind is just blown. And I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. This just doesn't happen. This would fill the entire galaxy. At this point, I just trust your God. Well, watch this, watch this, watch this. This is just talking about 45 prophecies. You're talking about the probability of over 40 authors over 1,500 years, watch, from three continents speaking three different languages, all pointing to the same man on the same cross testifying about Jesus. I'm telling you this right now. This book is alive. This book is powerful. The word of God is living. favorite thing about God's word is it's alive. 
where you could read a text a hundred times. But when you're in his daily encounter and you just skim it one more time, all of a sudden it jumps off the page. It hits you in the face. You feel the kick of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden it's saying something brand new, new and fresh, even though the doctrine isn't changing because his word is alive. You could read any other bestseller. And by the end of the day, Moby Dick is still just about a well. But you could read this book that's a lamp into your feet and light into your path. And it comes alive in your heart every time. We could preach from the same text every Sunday at church. And every Sunday it will come alive because God's word is alive. God's word brings life, not death. His word will bring you alive, but religious people try to use his word to bring death. Let me just pass to you for a moment. Anytime someone tries to take that sword of the spirit and use it to hurt people, let me tell you, it's witchcraft. I already told you, Satan knew scripture. The Pharisees had the first three books of the Torah memorized. And when the man that it was all talking about showed up, they couldn't see him. Even though they thought they knew God by the scripture, according to 1 Peter, he said, what you don't understand is what you memorize testifies about me. But they were so religious, they couldn't even see the Messiah when he came. Listen, the purpose of God's word is to bring you life. It brings life more abundantly. Religious people will try to use God's word to bring death and destruction. We see this in Luke chapter 22. Jesus is with his disciples. It says in verse 47, while he was still speaking, a crowd arrived, led by the man they called Judas, one of the twelve, he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Verse 49, those around Jesus saw what was about to happen. And they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Verse 50, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Jesus answered, no more of this. And he reached down. He touched the man's ear. And he healed him. Jesus said, Peter, put that sword away. The sword is to be meant to be used on you, not others. That sword removes your flesh, your pride, your sin, your arrogance, your fear, your unbelief. It, it's to be used on you and the enemy. Not others. Listen, don't get it twisted. Even when I'm teaching about homosexuality, I'm not using a sword to hurt you. I'm equipping what God says. And it doesn't matter what you're dealing with, whether homosexual sin or heterosexual sin. All sin has to be laid down. We deny ourselves. Pick up a cross and follow Jesus no matter what you're struggling with. The word of God brings life, not death. Let's get into our text to close today. Mark, if you would come join me. John chapter 20. Jesus had died on the cross, conquered sin in the grave, and he returned and visited his disciples. And when he came to visit his disciples, for some reason we don't know in the text why, but Thomas wasn't there. What we do know is that Thomas was listed as one of the disciples or the apostles. He's listed in the Synoptic Gospels and the book of Acts. We know that Thomas showed devotion and courage in John 11. He showed love and devotion in John 14. 
But despite those references, he's most famously known as Doubting Thomas. He's taught in Sunday school about the one that doubted. And here's what he said in John 20, verse 25. It says this. So the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, look at this. Unless I see his hands, the mark of nails and place my finger into the mark of nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That word belief is trust. You know what's interesting? There's some books that never made it in the Bible. The book of Enoch. And another book is the book of Thomas. Where it was proven that he didn't write it. It did not meet the standards of the canonization. But I thought how interesting that someone somewhere tried to enter a book into the Bible. But the one that didn't believe was known for this moment of doubt and unbelief. He said this, unless I take my finger and put it into his hand where the nails put holes unless I take my hand and thrust it into his side now biblically speaking Jesus had not yet ascended to heaven and been given his new body I don't know about you but I could cut my hand or finger or scratch something and even for a few weeks just a little scab could be sensitive and if you tear that scab open, it could easily bleed. Jesus is not long off the cross and he's saying to his disciples, hey, come over here. He said, you can take Thomas, your finger, and you can put it, thrust it into my hand. You can take your hand and thrust it into my side. He was saying this, Thomas, I will bleed for you again. Because church, your doubt is what will make your faith bleed. Watch this. Thomas walked and talked with Jesus for three years. He was with him. He saw the demons cast it out. He saw the blind eyes open. He saw the, he saw the paralyzed made to walk. He saw the signs and wonders and miracles. Remember they said not enough books in the world could contain all that Jesus did. He was there. He heard the teachings about he was the Christ, the son of the living God. He was there when Jesus said, I'm going to go and suffer many things at the hands of the Romans, but I'm going to come back and my kingdom's not of this earth. He was there the whole time. Watch. He was with Jesus in the flesh and despite being with Jesus in the flesh, it wasn't enough for Thomas's doubt. And some of you, it doesn't matter how much proof in history there is of God's word. It doesn't matter how much proof there is in science of God's word. Despite the overwhelming evidence that this is God's word, church, it will still require faith no matter what. Here's my heart. If some of you are missing out on some of the greatest God encounters of your entire life because you're not valuing his word. And the Lord spoke to us prophetically that this was a year of strengthening and fortifying our faith and that we would strengthen our faith through the word of God. I feel a prophetic warning. Someone needs to mark this moment. One of the symbols of God's word is an anchor. And what will anchor you is God's word. 
It's what will produce in you the roots for the fruit that you desire. Church, hear me today. There's a God encounter waiting for you inside his word. And here's what I prayed today, this week. Some of you come to Mercy Culture every single week expecting and knowing God will move. We wrote on the side of our building, it's like this every week because a move of God is so consistent. And here's my prayer for you today is that you will go to God's word with greater expectation than you do a mercy culture church service.